And Montenegro is is a is a wonderful Amaro because it's got this beautiful kind of beguiling sweetness that hits you as soon as um, you put it on uh, in on the palate. That but that immediately kind of goes away and is replaced by this very elegant bitterness. Hey everybody, welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host Chris Lebeau. The goal of this show is to understand the inner workings and evolution of mixology, hospitality, and community. As I further my own knowledge of the field, I'm inviting you to join me. You'll hear me interview people from around the industry about their work and beliefs. If you like what you hear, the best way to keep up is to subscribe via the podcast app you use. And if you think others will like this, I invite you to share an episode or write a review. Your words help grow our audience. And you can keep up with the latest news via our newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, or see what we're working on via Instagram. And please reach out. I'd enjoy hearing what you liked, learned, and what else you'd like to see me dig into. So let's get into it. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Decoding Cocktails podcast. My guest today is Tad Carducci. He is a lifelong bartender, award-winning mixologist. He's an author, educator, drinks consultant, and a self-described bon vivant. Tad has over 30 years of experience in the hospitality industry, and for many years, one of his primary things was a partner of Tipling Brothers, which was a New York-based beverage consultancy that operated from 2008 to 2017. Part of that was having a bar called The Tippler, which is a uh, was described as a cavernous cocktail bar under Manhattan's famed Chelsea Market. As a result of his time with Tippling Brothers, uh, Tad, uh, working in part during that as the beverage director of the Mercadito Restaurant Group, um, also co-authored a book called A Lime and a Shaker, Discovering Mexican-Style Cocktails. Tad has had his work featured in Food & Wine Magazine, The New York Times, New York Post, Bon Appetit, and many more. Um, also, as I was kind of throwing this thing together, uh, saw that he was very recently recognized at the Tales of a Cocktail as one of the country's top brand ambassadors. So congrats to Tad for that. Uh, starting in 2018 until 2020, he served as the North American brand ambassador for Amaro Montenegro, but now represents Grupo Montenegro, the holding company, uh, as the Director of Outreach and Engagement. If you want to see what Tad is up to, uh, you can follow him on Instagram at Tad Tippling, T-I-P-P-L-I-N-G. Tad was just, one, a very generous spirit, but just an incredible fountain of knowledge. Uh, No matter what I threw at him, he knew exactly where to run with it, and the answers were rich and fun. Uh, It was a very warm-hearted conversation, which I was uh, very grateful for. Um, From a practical use standpoint, um, we are going to get way deep into bitter liqueurs in this case. And so things to think about are aperitivi as well as amari. So in this regard, we're going to talk about red bitter liqueurs, things like Campari, 
uh, and Aperol, as well as one of the brands that Tad represents, Select, uh, which at least in the Midwest is a little bit newer to the market. We're also going to talk about Amari as a category too, which is very, very helpful to think about, you know, Montenegro, which he works with, but also thinking about that compared to Fernet Branca or Amaro Chiocharo, helping people to think about things along the, the case of a spectrum. Uh, how do you kind of soften these bitter liqueurs up? Where do they plug in? Uh, it was even fun at one point, Tad was just saying, you know what? He goes, something like Montenegro, of which he's obviously a very big fan. Uh, he's like, you know, so many cases I just tell people, you know, kind of just like, I don't know, often like add a quarter or a half ounce to something. He talks about that with margaritas, espresso martinis, um, bigger pours of uh, Montenegro and tonic. You guys, Montenegro and tonic water, whoa, it is, seriously, it's really good. And even kind of digs into the fact that so Amaro, Montenegro, or just Amaro in general, and tonic are both bitter things, despite tonic having some sugar added to it to sweeten it, that he talks about when you bring two bitter things together, it actually um, can really kind of help lessen the bitterness, which I hadn't really thought about before. Uh, Tad is uh, someone who chased education a whole lot and is always learning, but talked about that um, uh, there's a great part in the interview when he talks about that he realized that while the education was important, he was chasing it because he was chasing approval to prove that he could do the thing as opposed to did he have to have the credentials? No, but he felt like that validated his doing it. And one of his mentors was like, you're already doing it. Don't worry about it. The other universal thing that uh, he said he comes across everywhere in the industry, which makes sense and I feel very deeply at times when I'm working, is that he's has people who love this industry are very into pleasing and making people happy. And obviously there can be, that can happen to an unhealthy uh, level version of things, but is something that I know that I feel very much when I'm with a guest uh, or even hosting friends. And I need to remember to enjoy my own party when I'm hosting friends. Um, but yeah, it was um, it was a real, it was a lot of fun to interview Tad. Uh, the interview just flew by and uh, I think you guys will enjoy it. So uh, my interview with Tad Carducci. Tad, thanks so much for taking some time today to, to talk. I appreciate it. Chris, thanks for having me. I, I appreciate uh, you uh, asking me to be here. Wonderful. You know, so when I think about where to, where to start today, you know, uh, you've, uh, as I remember seeing published in DC, just to see you've been in the industry for a, a long minute now is, <laughs> and many, for many people, they might start in the industry kind of as a, a default or like it's, it, 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 they're, they're just biding their time. But is there a moment you remember feeling called to, or deciding you were going to commit to this industry is is, is there a moment or moments you remember uh absolutely uh i mean there are several moments but there's there's one in particular that i i do remember i mean i had been in the industry in some form or another in in hospitality and whether that was uh tossing pizzas or flipping burgers or waiting tables or uh as a as a, a bartender and 
uh, restaurant manager, things like that. But I, throughout my twenties and thirties, I was an actor and the, and for me, just like, you know, similar story to so many others working in the hospitality industry was a means to an end. It allowed me to pursue, uh, pursue acting. But as I, as I got further and further into different facets of the industry, I became more transfixed and taken by certain things, uh, wine, especially uh, cooking and, and different types of, of uh, cuisines. And I started to become more and more immersed uh, and started to um, kind of self-study a, uh, a lot of these things. Uh, and I remember I was working, uh, I was the assistant food and beverage manager for a golf course, uh, which was, a, you know, when I think back now, very, very out of context and very out of place for me. But um, it, I, I remember one night I left work and I had just, we had just tasted all of these in, incredible wines. Um, and I, I had a, a very, a, a sort of an epiphany and I understood that I didn't want to spend my time pursuing a career uh, in performance that I never, I, I could never be guaranteed or guaranteed was going to materialize no matter how much I worked. Uh, it was a, very much a luck of the draw. Whereas if I learned everything I possibly could about something about which I was equally passionate, I could control the trajectory of my career. So I decided that night that I was going to be a, a lifer uh, in food and beverage and, um, you know, and then immediately signed up and, and uh, started taking courses with quartermaster sommeliers and wine and spirits education trust. And, uh, and then really kind of really dived in head first uh, into spirits and cocktails and, and things like that. Yeah. And I, I do think about too, that in the role of bartending and hospitality, there's also certainly very much a level of performance at times oh, too, in terms of yeah. being, yeah, being able to, yeah, 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 for sure. There's a, I mean, there's a reason that so many people who uh, are in this industry and who you, for whom this is their profession um, come from performance backgrounds, because whether one is serving tables or standing behind a bar uh, it's a it's a show. It's a performance, and we adopt. We all adopt different characters and characterizations and personas when we are in those situations uh, than when we are just at home or we're with friends and things like that. We all. Uh, it, it's funny because I, I've had conversations over the years with different friends and colleagues. We all have we we have scripts and we have these. Uh, we have jargons and, 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 and different words that we use on a regular basis when we're dealing with guests than we would ever use in our, in our personal lives. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's very much performance and it's, it's as gratifying. It can be as gratifying for sure uh, as you know, uh, performing in front of a, a, a live audience in a theater or, or uh, you know, in front of a camera or something like that. Yeah, because I mean, you know, obviously on a busy night in a packed house, you could certainly look at it this way. But also there's just the uh, the applause of a guest, like handing them a drink and them going like, holy shit, this is amazing. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, that's that. 
Go ahead. But, but there's also, you know, it's, I don't know whether it's, it's tied in, um, and from a psychological perspective, but I have found that all people, uh, who are really passionate about hospitality and are in the business, whether it's in a restaurant or whether it's, uh, in a bar or whether it's working for a brand or, or things like that, we all have, we all share this similar, uh, almost obsessive desire to please people, to, uh, to make people happy, not in the sense that, uh, you know, we need to be wearing the right thing, or we need to be saying the right things so that we, so that there's some, you know, like an adulation or things like that, but truly wanting to make people happy. Uh, and it's a, it's a common trait that, that I have found, uh, is shared by, by those who, who really, really dig this business. I will, I, I will, I will second that. That is, it certainly, uh, I, I identify with that. Uh, so you mentioned, I mean, you know, in terms of who, who you are as your, your makeup. So like, you know, you talk about wine and spirits, education trust, you know, uh, bar alcohol resource, BAR, um, it certainly seemed that as I was digging into your background that like, you know, wh wherever there is a course, Tad just might be there. Is that kind of part of who you are, how you attack a problem? Because uh, I, I, I didn't notice. It seems like there's a lot of certifications and courses uh, in your background. Uh, you know, it's funny. That's I, I've always been I, I was always uh, a good uh, a good student. I was always uh, I always tested well. I always uh, appreciated uh, research and, and study and, and, um, uh, things like that. So when I was in my twenties and early thirties, I, I was obsessive about learning as much as I possibly could about, uh, everything that I was endeavoring to, uh, to pursue. Uh, and as you know, a, a decade plus after that, or, um, what I've realized is, I needed to do all of those things and, and get all those certifications to say, look, ma, I'm good at this. I can do this. And only to forget it, uh, you know, and, and um, have it, have it, have built a foundation. Uh, but then uh, it, it just becomes, it, it becomes kind of the core of, of everything that I've done since um, but it, I, I, a mentor of mine in the industry, somebody who, uh, I mean, I, I was completely, uh, infatuated with, and I wanted to follow his career when I was younger, uh, became, as I started to go through some of these, uh, certifications and levels, um, became, uh, a, a colleague and a contemporary of mine. And, we, and uh, I have been working with him ever since. And I remember I was, I was going to pursue a, a certain level of uh, wine certification and education. Um, and he stopped me and he said, why, why, why do you want to do this? Uh, and I said, well, because, because I need to, because I need to have those initials behind my uh, you know, and in my, in my signature and on my card. And he said, but truly why? Because look at what you're doing now. What you're doing now is what 
those other people are aspiring to do and want to use these certifications to get to the point where they're doing the same work that you're doing now. You're already in it. You're already doing it. So do it and be best and help other people um, raise to a level, uh, you know, commensurate to where, to where you are. And I kind of, it stopped me dead in my tracks. I'm like, Oh shit, wait a minute. Uh, it was like, you know, this, like I had climbed a mountain to talk to this sage or a guru who gave, who, who enlightened me. Uh, so since then, uh, I've been pursuing and doing and, and, uh, and fighting the good fight, but my, um, my, I don't know what the word is, uh, my, I guess, major uh, desire or objective or goal has been instead to, uh, to educate and to teach while I still learn every single day, obviously, uh, is to share that with uh, the next generations of, of uh, people coming up within the industry. And that's what I do. I, um, I so relate to that in terms of, and I, because I, I've gotten over it, but yeah, to see people who like, well, I have to have the initials or the degree in order to do the thing. And it's not my rejection of it, but yeah, there is this thing of like, I'm doing it so that my mom and everybody else will know, Oh, you're capable of doing it as opposed to, to your point of like, you just step into it. And so I think that is, it's kind of how I found myself where I am. You know, I've, I'm a, uh, a passionate home bartender who taught enough friends how to do this stuff. That's eventually some, some people were like, can we, can we pay you to like teach us about this? And I was like, well, that's a great idea. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I appreciate that. Do you mind if I ask uh, uh, the the mentor you kind of have looked up to and worked with, uh, 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 who is this person? Uh, I don't know. I don't know as though I'm comfortable saying uh, who fine. it is be, because that person, um, you know, uh, is an incredible, incredible wealth of, uh, of knowledge, uh, on many subjects related to liquid. Uh, and I don't know as though I would <laughs> wouldn't sure. want anybody knowing that that person was saying, yeah, you don't need to do that. You're uh, come on. You're already, you're already in, um, because the person is also, you know, still very much involved with, um, uh, a couple different, uh, organizations and, and certification, uh, uh, groups and, and uh, guilds, let's say. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, so we're all we're also talking about an industry where um, you know the uh, failure rate of business is plenty high and you know not easy. So a person, I think, has to be the right kind of uh, crazy and passionate to want to make something. So uh, tell me, tell us a little bit about Tippling Brothers uh, and. Uh, how you came to take the plunge into doing your own thing in that regard? Uh, well, uh, Tippling Brothers actually uh, was an accidental direct result of uh, a another certification and and, and class. Uh, I got invited in 2006 to participate in the first ever uh, beverage alcohol resource um, course and, and certification. And, uh, it, I mean, it was a huge honor to be, to be asked. And, uh, one of the other uh, people who was, who was invited to do it, uh, was, is 
a gentleman named Paul Tangway, uh, who was uh, in his, at the time was one of the first uh, real sake authorities in uh, the U.S. and really helped to introduce sake and shochu and things, uh, spirits like that to, uh, to the U.S. by way of cocktails and things like that. Uh, and he and I struck up uh, conversations throughout the, the course and common interests. And, uh, it, and we both understood that we wanted to take what, what it was that we were each uh, so passionate about and share them with a wider audience and cast a wider net. Uh, he was running a restaurant group at the time. I was uh, running a, a bar and restaurant beverage program at the time. And we had both kind of uh, started getting some press and notoriety. This was like early 2000s. There wasn't a lot going on yet. Uh, getting written up about cocktails and uh, getting winning competitions and things like that. Um, so ultimately, after the course, we decided that we were going to work on this plan to start a consulting company, keep our jobs, but start small. And we put together uh, sort of a, a business plan and, and rough idea of what we wanted to tackle and accomplish and what we wanted to share with the world. Uh, and then uh, very quickly understood that this, you know, that we were ambitious and we wanted to really do something and make a big impact. Uh, and so I do recall that on uh, December 8th, uh, 2007. So just before Christmas, I quit my friggin' job and, uh, we, and so did he, and we both just leapt and hoped that the net would appear. And before we could even really start getting, putting the word out, uh, you know, we kind of hung our shingle out on the nail and immediately started becoming inundated with, with business. And we were doing consulting for, uh, hotel groups, restaurant groups, uh, in, independent restaurants. Uh, we were uh, being asked to write for beverage uh, media. We, were, we did development on uh, beverages and, and, and different sort of projects while throwing events and, uh, and being asked to do the beverage program for events and things like that. So, uh, every work just kind of came at us from every different direction so much so that we couldn't even really kind of hone and define, uh, what we wanted to be out of that, what we really wanted to focus on, but, uh, it was really pretty incredible. And out of that, you know, we, we had Tipling brothers for, uh, a decade, and out of that, we also became uh, partners in uh, a restaurant group that had uh, re restaurants in New York, Chicago, uh, Miami, and Las Vegas for a hot minute. And uh, that those restaurants were uh, Mexican-inspired. Uh, so from there, uh, developed a really deep love of agave spirits and got to travel frequently to Mexico. And from there stemmed the impetus to uh to write uh a lime and a shaker uh so i can you know thank that partnership for that uh and then also our partnership in a bar called the tipler uh in new york sort of uh halfway eponymous um and uh uh opened the tipler and that was just an incredible experience 
and uh, remained partners in the Tipler for uh, several years and then ultimately uh, um, uh, sold our shares and moved on to other, other projects. Wow. Yeah. Talk about kind of just serendipity and uh, things in motion kind of yeah. running. I'm sure there's plenty of hustle behind it all too, but uh, there, was, there was a fair amount of hustle, lots of, uh, lots of uh, airline points and uh, uh, hotel and hotel points as well. Uh, but I got to, you know, uh, have incredible experiences, meet a, just a tremendous uh, collection of incredibly talented, uh, passionate people. I, I learned so much um good bad or otherwise uh throughout the those uh those 10 years or so oh, it was a pretty incredible experience wow i do have um i will save it more towards the end where it's more like question and response but i do have a couple of uh there are a couple of cool things i learned in lime and a shaker that i would be interested to uh pick your brain on for a moment uh, absolutely and uh, we can kind of work through those a little bit so Part of what we're also, what I was excited about is I remember it was the summer, no, fall of 2015 or 16. Uh, I could figure it out, but it doesn't matter which one it is, but I'm sitting in my friend Josh's backyard and, you know, we're, we're already a couple, couple of tipples into, uh, to a great day, but I remember him saying, you know, Hey, do you want to try some Amaro? And I was like, well, what, what's that? And, uh, so I just remember, of course, like this, you know, bitter, maybe slightly orangey elixir kind of, you know, washing over my palate and being like, I don't know if I like this, but I know I've definitely never tried anything like it before. And a lot of times when I think of bitter beverages or shoot, when somebody thinks of their first beer, you know, it's often not love at first taste. It's like, it's something you learn to like, but that was kind of the afternoon I tried my first Amaro, which happened to be, um, Montenegro. So I, I guess I'm, I'm curious to kind of start at the beginning, because obviously these, these elixirs are not new. Can you talk to us a little bit about like the history of uh, Amaro and Amari as a category? Like, like, what do people need to know about it that they might've seen it, they might've tried it, but what is kind of the 101 on that look like? Okay. Uh, all right. Let's, let's boil this down. We'll break it down. Uh, first and foremost, Amaro uh, is the Italian word for bitter. So uh, right off the bat, we know everything in this category is going to have at least some level of bitterness. By definition, the, the easiest way that I have found to, to kind of define it for people, um, it, my boilerplate is bittersweet herbal liqueur, traditionally drunk after a meal. Um, that's kind of the easiest way to to simplify and break it down. And it covers really everything from Amaro Montenegro to Fernet Branca uh, and sort of everything in between. Um, the, the, the categories as, as commercial product, uh, Amari, you know, which is the plural Amaro singular Amari plural uh, have been re really the, the beginning of the 1800s to the mid 1800s is when we see, when we saw a proliferation of uh, brands becoming commercially available, uh, mass produced. Uh, and that was in large part due to um, uh, the industrial revolution, um, mechanization of, of things, the ability to um, use a, a base alcohol 
um, that was uh, because of uh, column distillation, uh, less expensive, uh, more plentiful and higher quality. Um, that in, in kind of combination with increased uh, travel and tourism to, to Europe, to Italy and things like that made it kind of a, a, a perfect storm for these brands uh, to become commercially viable. But when we really think, think about these things, we, we have to go back centuries, even millennia to ancient Rome. Uh, for sure, also ancient Greece, um, uh, ancient cultures in the East as well, where botanical infused alcohol would have been used as very early forms of medicine. Um, and there was no dist uh, distillation uh, per se, we're, we're not 100% sure, but uh, in, let's say in ancient Rome, uh, but there was fermentation. So there was, there was uh, wine and, and beer-like um, alcoholic beverages. And there were doctors and botanists and, and philosophers and scholars of, of um, many different types, uh, many different natures who were studying the medicinal effects or, or kind of remedial effects of different plants um, from, uh, from around Europe, but also from other parts of the world. Um, and understanding that when preserved in wine or in alcohol in different combinations, uh, they potentially had uh, a different combinations of uh, medicinal effects and whether that was uh, cleaning the blood of uh, parasites or um, uh, filtering or kind of flushing organs or things like that. Uh, remember it was, it was ancient Rome. So, you know, there are studies on, on those things like, you know, uh, antiseptic, uh, antipyretic, uh, things like that. But also it's, there were certain combinations of things that if taken daily, it stemmed the chronic propensity to turn into a werewolf, uh, things like that. You know, there's, you know, this is, <laughs> this is definitely pre-science. Um, but then when distillation kind of really came into, uh, being in be and became much more advanced technologically right around um, 1000 AD, 1100 AD, and right before we started to see uh, different spirits categories emerge. Uh, it was understood that with distilled alcohol, we had a much stronger vehicle um, to, I to A, preserve and B, extract uh, medicinal uh, elements out of these botanicals. Um, so, uh, much more study was done and, and, um, more, uh, kind of stronger concoctions and potations and things were, uh, were developed. That's also where we start, you know, from there, um, it split off to gin, uh, and to aquavit and to other, uh, but like botanically infused, uh, spirits all containing things that had maybe some medicinal benefit. In the case of Amaro, in the case of bitters, I think what we, at the, at the end of the day, a couple thousand years later, what we know um, is, that we, is that these things are very good for the digestive system. And whether that is opening up the appetite or helping us to digest, um, in addition to being very pleasant to uh, very pleasant to drink uh, recreationally. 
that they're good for the gut as well. Uh, and you, you mentioned a word before, uh, bitter, and you said uh, that you personally, it took you a, f- uh, a few tries to uh, appreciate um, different bitter uh, alcoholic beverages. Uh, and that is really the crux of it all. Uh, all of these things contain bitterness uh, in some, some level, whether, you know, sometimes very soft, sometimes very aggressive. Uh, but bitter is the key to why these things work for our digestion and bitter in, uh, in nature and bitter to really to humans, uh, in general around the world, uh, is not a flavor profile that we are intrinsically, uh, programmed to enjoy. It's something that we have to learn, uh, to appreciate. So you're not alone, uh, you're not alone in that. And, and that comes from evolution. It comes from science. Uh, in nature, bitter is a warning sign for poison. Bitter, you know, we're not supposed to eat bitter things. Bitter tells us, I'm going to fucking kill you. Stay away from me, you know. Um, so through some trial and error over, over the course of uh, many uh, thousands of years of uh, civilization, um, humans have understood that you stay away from things that are ragingly bitter because they're telling you right off the bat that it's not good for you. But when uh, our brains, when we consume something that's, that's heavily bitter, the brain automatically sends a message to the digestive system saying, "Eh, eh, eh," you know, evacuate, evacuate, get everything out, you know, best possible fighting chance at survival. So the whole digestive system goes on overload to expel uh, the interloper. But when we take something that's just a little bit bitter, uh, the brain still, you know, starts to send a message, but it's more like, hey, guys, I don't want to alarm anybody, but we could have a little problem here. Um, so let's just, you know, keep our eyes open. And so we, we start the process. We start to salivate. The stomach starts to grumble. Uh, we start to create pepsin in the, um, in the, uh, in the stomach and, and um, just in case but we never have to get there. So what it does um, in effect as a, as a, as a sort of side effect is that it, it gets the digestive system going and we either get hungry uh, before a meal or we digest if we've eaten. I think um, expel the interloper belongs on a bottle somewhere. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, high praise who wouldn't want to buy a bottle that's expel the interloper <laughs> so you know you were talking about um we talked about you know agave a little bit earlier through tippling brothers we talked you know and now we're talking about amaro but both of these are things that are very very ancient in terms of being um you know that recipes vary regionally based on which agave plant grows you know at altitude versus under a tree etc you know, it's my understanding throughout Italy, obviously different climate zones, regions, you know, and something you mentioned in our pre-tape we can talk to about as well as, you know, global trade and influences, you know, that, that two different Amari, be that Fernet Branca and, um, and Montenegro, or, you know, Averno and Amaro Nanino, these all don't taste the same too. And so part of it is based on what's going in. So as kind of a, a drill in a little bit, if someone's popping the top on a bottle of Montenegro, what are they going to smell and taste? And why is that what's in the bottle? That, um, 
that's a, a, a great conversation point. And that's something that uh, has always fascinated me about Amaro, about bitters. The fact that they can be iconically uh, Italian um, and that they can be hyper regional and really only include uh, plants that grow uh, on hillsides in, uh, in and around Torino, let's say, or made from uh, different herbs and fruits and things like that in very hot, dry climates of like southeastern or southwestern Italy, let's say. Uh, so very regional and, and dependent upon local uh, ingredients. Uh, and they're delicious and highly prized and, and uh, very specific. Uh, but then you have other Amaro brands like uh, Amaro Montenegro. Uh, I would also classify Averna as, as one in a similar category mm -hmm. that really amalgamates or marries um, it sort of endemic, uh, endemic uh, ingredients or things that would be found like uh, herbs like oregano and marjoram and uh, things like that, that would be very Italian with some of those with uh, let's say artemisia or wormwood uh, that's also grown in, in, in different parts of Italy and different parts of Europe, but marrying that with ingredients that do not grow anywhere near uh, the Italian peninsula, things like cinnamon and cloves and nutmeg, um, saffron, well, saffron does now, but didn't uh, originally, but ingredients that had to be discovered or, or um, uncovered from very different parts of the globe. And it, to me, it's fascinating because uh, for Amaro Montenegro, which when somebody tastes it, they taste oranges, they taste flowers, they taste uh, nuts and vanilla and, um, and cinnamon and, and uh, cloves and ginger and, and things like this. Uh, incredibly multi-layered uh, multi in terms of uh, flavor profile. But it's iconically Montenegro and it tastes nothing like any other Amaro. It tastes only like Amaro Montenegro. Um, but it took, uh, it took really not for, well, for Montenegro, it, it took travel by one person around the world for a few years uh, to collect 40 different botanicals and bring them back and create what became Montenegro. Uh, but for the category, uh, it took, you know, thousands of years of, uh, of global exploration and discovery uh, in introduction to new cultures and new cuisines and things like that um, and trade to be brought back um, to Italy to be kind of woven into the fabric of, uh, of, uh, cuisines or, or, um, trade or commerce or things like that to, for it to land there, to be able to find its way into, uh, find their way, their ways into all of these secret mysterious recipes. And there's always a lot of secret and intrigue and mystery around, uh, Aperitivo and Amaro brands. Uh, and it's part of the, the mystique. It's part of the allure, um, of the, of the brands and, and of the, uh, the companies, the families that make them. Uh, but it, it, I find it very interesting because we think that it's, um, that, that it's 
a, a product of this sort of alchemy of, uh, of these, these different recipes. But really in the early to mid 1800s, when these things became commercialized because of uh, tourism and travel, because of the industrial revolution, um, these were entrepreneurs. These were upstarts who needed to promote their brands and say, my brand is either better or different than uh, my competitor's brand down the street. Um, I'm not going to tell you how or why. I'm not going to tell you what's in it and nobody gets to know what's in it. Um, but this is what we uh, present. So, was, you know, many of these were really um, a byproduct of, uh, of uh, competitive business to these, these secrets. So, so at this point, they're like three people in the family who know what the actual recipe is or something. Probably. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I always like to say, you know, uh, in the case of Amaro Montenegro, uh, there's one person in Bologna uh, uh, where it's made. Uh, and then there's uh, a, a guy who lives in Bayonne, New Jersey. And then there's one who lives on the top of a mountain in Nepal. Uh, and those three know, you know, they, they together know, uh, know the recipe, um, completely untrue and totally fabricated, <laughs> but, uh, That's great. you know, it's, it's, it, I, I, so I've, I've had the good fortune of over the last decade or so working with more than a dozen, uh, Amaro producers and gotten to work with the families and, and it just been a marvelous, incredible experience getting to know these people. Um, and some, it's shocking who, who are global brands. Uh, I know one brand in particular that I, uh, is run by a father and a son. Uh, I was with the son one day who told me that his father keeps the recipe for their, uh, Amaro in his wallet. Uh, and I told him, well, tomorrow your dad's not going to show up to work. I am. Um, and I'm going to have that recipe. I will take good care of your father. I promise you we'll put him, we'll get him his own little Island. He'll, he'll be very comfortable, but I am going to be the CEO of the company tomorrow because you just shared that information with me. It's, it's wild. And, and, and just shows up like how, uh, quaint things can be, even when yes. they're likely, you know, running uh, a global brand. Absolutely. Point, so. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I think also about like, you know, the state of that you've, We've all witnessed, but you've certainly had a front row seat to like, you know, the fast moving pace of the cocktail industry out there. So with so much crazy stuff happening right now, why should people be looking at this? Like, you know, these old spirits or or liqueurs, what what should kind of, um, what should draw people into a category like this? um, If they are, you know, if, if they're, if they're seeking something new uh what what should excite them about something like montenegro uh well it's very interesting to me that in italy uh amaro is drunk after a meal it's drunk traditionally it's usually uh drunk liscio or neat um or with ice um after after a meal almost exclusively and that's really remained unchanged um since the, 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 the genesis of, of the, the brands in the category, uh, it's starting to change now to some degree um, with Amaro as an addition to cocktails. But for us here, uh, we, people who are uh, just you know, getting into cocktails, getting into spirits, uh, first and foremost, we know 
that every good cocktail should have some bitters in it. Right. Um, and, uh, we all, there, there are certain categories of cocktail or types of cocktail, um, that, that people kind of start with. And usually those are things like a martini or a Manhattan. Um, we, I think I can go to Tulsa, Oklahoma and walk into a bar and ask for a Negroni and nine times out of 10, I'll get one now. Um, so we're much more educated. We're much more aware. We're much more gastronomically savvy, uh, than we were as, you know, as a population, even five years ago. Um, and there is, a, there is a desire now for people, uh, to want to explore a little bit. Amaro, um, is bitters. It's just bitters that you can actually drink out of the bottle as well. And that you can, instead of using three dashes of, uh, use a half ounce or three quarters of an ounce or, or more in a cocktail. Um, and they are, um, they are modifiers too. So, you know, whether it's a Maro or a Peritivo or another type of liqueur, when somebody walks down that aisle in the liquor store, like we were talking about earlier, um, and is sort of daunted by these things, they were all, they were all created and, and uh, created too. And the intention was for them to be drunk by themselves, uh, just be sipped uh, or enjoyed on their own for what they are. But we know that they make incredible um, cocktail ingredients. And it's a fun uh, sort of journey to take um, to use them, think about them in a, a variety of cocktails and start to work up from small amounts uh, and have them be modifiers in cocktails to maybe ultimately becoming the base of a cocktail to then work back around to being able to enjoy them just on their own in a, in a glass. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes total sense. Uh, using maybe Montenegro as a foil, but introducing something else. So for somebody who's looking to go a little bit deeper in the pool or just kind of, I feel like it is that contrast that in part helps someone better recognize the orange by giving something. So, you know, and maybe we don't need to give them the most unholy of fernets out there or something, but is there uh, a brand or a style you would recommend? You know, I've got my bottle of Montenegro as an example. I want to have something not like that. Um, is, is there, is there a, a product or two you'd recommend somebody grab or do, do a taste or two of at their local bar? Oh man. Uh, I mean, that's, I'm trying to think of an analogy here. There, there are so many uh, brands with so many nuanced uh, flavor profiles that, uh, uh, and you know, flavor profiles, different levels of sugar, bitterness, alcohol. Right. Uh, you know that it just represents this enormous canvas of uh, of you know, colors, let's say, but in, when it comes to flavor, that that's really hard to pin down. But I would say, you know, let's look at a spectrum uh, uh, from kind of uh, lightest to most, uh, let's say most assertive uh, or least bitter to most bitter, or, you know, it can be kind of a common, we'll just say light to uh, assertive. Let's say that um, Amaro Montenegro would be at the light end. Uh, and, and Montenegro is, is, a, is a wonderful Amaro because it is, 
uh, it's a little bit uh, lighter uh, in terms of uh, in terms of bitterness. It's got this beautiful kind of beguiling sweetness that hits you as soon as um, you put it on uh, in on the palate. That, but that immediately kind of goes away and is replaced by this very elegant bitterness, and then just whacks you over the head with all of these different uh, flavors. Each one that you can kind of pull out, none that overwhelm uh, any other. So really, really balanced. But it's a great um, user friendly amaro. I don't want to say it's entry level because it's not, but it's very user friendly and it's very appealing to uh, a wide. Uh, audience and um, it, it's definitely one that I use to help introduce people to uh, the the category um, and is a cocktail workhorse you know for me then uh, if I'm moving let's say down this to the center uh, of the spectrum um, something like you know I, I want to stick to brands that people are, are going to find uh, let's say like uh, an Amaro uh, Chocharo, uh, something something like that. Um, a little uh, you know, a little weightier, uh, a little more robust in terms of uh, in terms of bitterness. A little more, uh, what's the word? Uh, maybe straightforward in t- in terms of its uh, botanicals, um, but a great. Uh, a, a great uh, cocktail or a great Amaro to use uh, as let's say an addition or substitution for vermouth in a Manhattan, something like that. Then if we're moving to, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum from Amaro Montenegro, um, we've got something like Fernet Branca, um, high in alcohol, uh, racy, uh, very assertive bitterness and very low uh, sugar. That is definitely for advanced palates. And when thinking about it in cocktails, uh, the, the application is going to be very different. You know, I, at home, I drink uh, Montenegro and soda uh, very often with an orange and I'll use uh, two ounces, two and a half ounces of Montenegro. I go through a lot of bottles of Montenegro um, and it can be, it's very sessionable. With Fernet Branca, I if I'm putting Fernet in a cocktail, I'm putting a quarter of an ounce in, maybe a half an ounce, um, because it's very uh, focused, very kind of specific, and any more than that, and it's a Fernet cocktail with other things atta- included, uh, sort of. Um, I, I do know some some really very talented mixologists who can put an ounce and a half of Fernet uh, into a cocktail. And really have it be harmonious, and you don't necessarily know that it's Fernet Branca. I am not that skilled uh, myself, but within that spectrum lies the fun because that's where the discovery is. Um, because between Montenegro and Chocharo, you've got Nonino, you've got Maletti, you've got uh, Amaro del Capo, things like that uh, that f- kind of flesh out that lighter end of the spectrum, and then between. Chocharo and uh, Fernet, you've got things like uh, Averna, Ramazzotti, Lucano, and a million more that are a little sweeter, a little more viscous, a little darker, richer uh, as well. So you can you can really have a ton uh, of fun. Uh, I think for for home consumers, um, having one, two, three bottles 
um, we'll cover them in terms of if they want to play around with, with uh, cocktails, lighter, medium, you know, really assertive. I, um, one, I'm, I'm visualizing a great infographic coming to life here for sure. But, uh, yeah, I, um, I, I remember like a trademark hashtag trademark. That's right. That's right. (laughs) But I think, um, yeah, I, I can think of like the old fashioned rip, the Toronto, I think it is that has like a teaspoon or so of like Fernet. Yeah. This idea that, you know, based on the, the, the grade of bitterness that we're assigning something depends on like how much you want to play with it. So that makes sense. Um, yeah. And again, like something simple, like Amaro Caldo with hot water, you know, or, you know, in soda, really helping to just open it up to, I think that's one of those things I'm always beckoning to people as well, like with your spirits as well, you know, kind of creating your own little mini highball or whatever, like, you know, yep. you know, soften that up, open it up. Uh, you know, the, the burn can be good, but sometimes you need something a little more softer to, to not uh, always have to torture the palate all the time. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you know, for summertime, um, Amaro and as you said, Amaro, Amaro and soda, uh, Amaro and ginger beer is a great sort of highball with some lime, a mule, uh, Montenegro makes a, a great mule. And so, so do, you know, the, the others, as you get progressively, richer, uh, also tonic water. So in, you know, in Italy, as I mentioned, uh, Amaro is, is generally consumed only after a meal, whereas aperitivo brands, uh, are drunk before a meal in a spritz in an Americano and something like that. Um, but the one sort of exception is Amaro and tonic. Uh, there are a lot of people who drink, uh, Amaro and tonic. And so I'll drink Montenegro and tonic or, or another brand. And it's really delicious. It's interesting when you compound two things that are bitter, um, it mitigates some of the bitterness of both and lets other more uh, citrusy flavors and floral flavors and things like that come out. Um, you know, tonic water on it, it, in its own right is very aromatic and botanical. Amaro in its own right is already sort of a cocktail in a bottle. So you put these two very simple ingredients together and it, you know, you get these really kind of explosive uh, flavors, but they're very refreshing. So it's very easy to, to make it home. Um, and it's something unexpected. I, I, I don't think most many people would think to put uh, Amaro together with, uh, with, uh, with tonic water uh, or for that matter, vermouth uh, in tonic. Uh, both work really, really well. Yeah, and, and and maybe threading the needle for people out there that aren't as versed. If I'm also going to, you know, with some of the bitter elements, you know, cold brew and tonic is obviously a big thing. Oh, yeah. So for people to kind of, you know, think about if if that's your thing at all, that's kind of the 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 what Tad is threading here as well in that regard. So. Yes, certainly, and um, that's a that's a great point. Uh, Amaro cold brew. And tonic is also very delicious. Um, and another little hack that I like to um, teach people that's pretty relevant right now is the uh, espresso martini, which is back with a massive veg- uh, vengeance. I remember making espresso martinis in the late 90s and uh, early 2000s, and then they kind of fell off the face of the earth. And then all of a sudden, you know, as of a couple of years ago, are really uh, back in a, in a big way. Um, I can certainly speak to Montenegro um, and I'm sure a host of other uh, Amaro brands uh, work beautifully in, uh, in an espresso martini 
potentially as a substitute for the coffee liqueur, um, if still using, uh, you know, obviously fresh espresso and shaking the shit out of it. Uh, a beautiful, beautiful uh, compliment to an espresso martini. Again, kind of compounding that bitterness, uh, adding some more complexity and, and more layers really uh, can make an espresso martini into a very uh, special drink. I am, uh, I'm sensing a good coming, uh, upcoming, uh, AB test for myself right there. That's going <laughs> to be good. You mentioned a little while ago, you talked about bitter as an opener versus a closer and on a meal. And for many people, you know, kind of seeing, um, a Montenegro, for example, versus a, uh, a select or an Aperol. Can you talk to us about why, um, some of these things are used more traditionally for an opener versus a, a closer on a meal. Sure, right sure, there. sure, sure. Um, well, um, you know, a, sort of in tandem with the idea that going back to the Roman Empire, that there were medicinal wines that were taken to, um, that, that were taken to help relieve maladies or prevent things. Um, you know, it was understood then that, these th that these things also helped to stimulate the appetite. So there was a, a tradition even from uh, thousands of years ago of taking something uh, lightly alcoholic with uh, some bitterness as the first course of a meal to help, you know, turbocharge and, and kick things off. So it's, so that part of it is not new and uh, it's been known for millennia uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to what we would call aperitivo liqueur uh, or an aperitif liqueur in French, um, or uh, the, as the Italians would also uh, refer to some of them as red bitters. Uh, so Campari, for instance, in Italy would be, is, is a bitter. Luxardo makes a bitter. Aperol is an aperitivo. Select is an aperitivo, but they're all part, they're all, you know, they're loosely, they're, they're loose uh, definitions in terms of what makes one, one or the other. Um, but we can use that same definition uh, that we used for Amaro, bitter, sweet, herbal liqueur, right? But in this case, traditionally drunk before a meal uh, to help stimulate the appetite. So main differences are gener generally going to be that aperitivo or aperitivo bitters um, are generally a little lighter in alcohol, generally a little uh, lighter um, in bitterness, uh, not quite as bitter. Um, they're very often, uh, citrus forward, usually, uh, orange or some variation, um, you know, whether it's, uh, orange or, uh, kumquat or, or, you know, bitter, sweet oranges, uh, kumquats, tangerines, mandarins, things like that. Um, and oftentimes, uh, there will be, uh, uh, just a little more per perceived uh, sweetness. Um, and the idea is that it's meant to be uh, light, lively, rejuvenating, um, and, and help stimulate the, the appetite as well. So uh, when one goes to aperitivo, let's say, after work um, in any Italian city, uh, they order a spritz or they order uh, a bitter and soda or potentially a, a Negroni or, or an Americano or something like that. 
Um, so they're, you know, oftentimes they're, they're mixed with ingredients that, um, have some carbonation. Uh, so it's, uh, light and kind of uplifting, uh, as well. Got it. Yeah. Um, and real quick, cause I feel like at least for, uh, coming to you out of the Midwest, I feel like I probably only first saw select here on our shelves, maybe two years ago or something like that. So first, uh, shout out to the, um, marketing powerhouse of, uh, Aperol for, uh, uh giving the world oh, yeah. the, the Aperol spritz. Yeah. But you know, for people out there kind of like, okay, select, what is that? So it is going to be more in the vein of an Aperol, correct? But again, still regional. I think it's, I think, I think it's proofing. It's bumped a little bit, but talk to us about, you know, are they proper substitutes for one another? And what should somebody know about something like? Sure, 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 sure. Um, it's interesting to me because um, when I was coming up in, as a bartender, let's say when I really started to get into cocktails in the very early 2000s, uh, I, I started get, getting into the idea of using Amaro in cocktails. At the time, I think there were maybe four, six something like that, that were available on the market in total. Uh, and that's what you could get. And I had them all flash forward, you know, let's say 20 years. Um, and there are well more than a hundred brands that are available uh, on the market in the U S and hundreds and hundreds more that are, um, available in Italy. So we've blown the doors open on that category. Uh, and mixologists and bartenders know about it. They, they're darlings of the industry. And now home consumers and home bartenders are absolutely um, following suit and uh, learning more and more about it. And that's why we're getting more and more brands. The aperitivo, aperitif, bitter kind of category is where Amaro was, let's say, 10 years ago. So up until just a couple of years ago, there were really only two brands and it was really Aperol on one side of the spectrum and Campari on the other side. And that was it. And that's what we knew. Those were the, the benchmarks and they're great benchmarks uh, for, for the category. Um, but now as mixologists and bartenders uh, are becoming more savvy and more aware of how to use these things, more brands are coming into, um, into, the, into the US market. Now, many of these, are brands um, that have been around for over a hundred years in Italy, but there really wasn't this massive need to export them because nobody really understood uh, what they were. Now they do. Uh, and now the floodgates are starting to open up. So select is, uh, is an aperitivo bitter um, from I, the, I, the easiest way to make a parallel or to have people understand is if you have Aperol on one side and Aperol is um, kind of sweet and orangey and, and mild uh, bitterness, very, uh, very light and delicious. Then on the other side of the spectrum, we have Campari, um, which is much higher in alcohol, uh, much higher in bitterness, uh, uses kind of different ingredients, uh, to really bolster and push the, the bitterness. Um, but it's, it's more assertive for sure. And those who love an Aperol spritz would not love an app, would not love a spritz made with Campari. Most likely, um, those who love a Negroni would not probably love a Negroni made with, uh, with Aperol. 
um, select happenstantially happens to kind of fall right in the middle of that, uh, that's, oh, excuse me, uh, that spectrum. Um, so it's in terms of alcohol, in terms of bitterness, in terms of, of sweetness and intensity, it's really right in between uh, those two. So it makes, I like to say it makes a bigger, bolder spritz and a kinder, gentler Negroni. Um, it can be used for uh, it can be used for both, but when it makes a spritz, it makes one that's more robust, more kind of savory, more a bit more bitter, um, and it sort of polishes the rough edges off of uh, a Negroni. Maybe for somebody who's just getting into uh, uh, into Negronis or, or or things like that. Um, so it's 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 an interesting category because. Again, there are not that many brands in the market yet. There are probably, I'd say, maybe a 20, 20-ish, maybe two dozen that I've seen that are pretty readily available. Um, lots of different flavor profiles in there. And uh, it's re- it really, you know, it's, it comes down to discovery and experimentation and, and home consumers, especially understanding what um, flavor profiles they like the best, um, how the bases work because some aperitivo brands are wine based. So you have something like a Capoletti that's based on wine and then is botanically infused and it's, and it's really delicious. Um, uh, but it's also, it's got a, there's a whininess, there's a, a sort of a raciness and acidity, um, because of the wine base that you wouldn't find with, with others. Um, but you can't necessarily plug and play that into, um, you know, if, if somebody were having a party and it was all people who uh, only knew the Aperol spritz and showed up with a bottle of uh, Contrato or, or even select and said, I'm going to make your, I'm going to make your Aperol spritzes, uh, but make them with this uh, people might, you know, it's going to take a little time for them to say, uh, I like this. Uh, this is delicious because they're used to something very light, like Aperol. Um, so, you know, again, it's, uh, oftentimes it's, it's a matter of adjusting, uh, expectations and, and being open to, um, trying things that, that bring different experiences, different essences, different flavor profiles. I do like that. Um, what do you say uh, a bigger spritz or a gentler Negroni? Uh, that's great because yeah, I, I think about, you know, my friend that I love to turn out Aperol Negronis for because Campari is just like, and so, yeah, to think about like, how do you kind of stair step that thing? So people yeah. can, mm-hmm. you know, because they, you know, they might find their way to a Campari, a Contrato bit or a St. George or whatever, mm-hmm. but they need to kind of like have the training wheels to get there as opposed to like, all right, let's throw you in the deep end of the pool now. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But then, but then, you know, if you have friends who drink, you know, heavy duty IPAs, um, and drink, uh, you know, like really funky dark roast coffee and, and things like that, you know, that you could probably throw them right into the, the, the deep end. It is, it is reading your audience. So you are right. Yes. Yeah. Um, awesome. That's helpful. Um, so a couple of things that in particular going back to, uh, lime in a shaker. So you start to kind of wind things up right here. Just have one or two questions. Uh, you talked about making, um, uh, at times throwing like a, a reposado tequila in with, uh, a cocktail to kind of like add some, some body to it. I think like mm-hmm. you, you talked about to like tone down the brightness. So would, 
uh, and I think you, you, I mean, I'm really maybe calling on the memory here, but I think it was a cocktail called like the little market, the, Mer the Mercadito. Yes. Uh, uh, I remember it well. But yeah, I, I feel like it was this idea of, um, cause I feel like sometimes still for the lay person staring at Blanco versus Reposado, it can still be like, what, what, what's the difference here? Obviously one, the Reposado being aged for a little while, but mm -hmm. how is adding a little bit of Reposado to your margarita or to your Mercadito in that place? How is that going to alter the cocktail for the person? Uh, well, it's going to, let's see, what's the best way it's going to, uh, dull the, the very sharp point on the pencil, uh, a, a little bit. It's going to just soften, um, soften the, the experience out. You know, a, if it's a margarita, let's say made, uh, with a Blanco tequila and fresh lime juice, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, I hate to use the term again, but it's racy, uh, uh, very vibrant, very, um, very citric, very, uh, sort of tangy. And then with a Blanco tequila, you're getting what I find to be very, you know, these beautiful herbaceous, um, uh, grassy kind of, uh, uh, flavors. Uh, and sometimes that could, that can be a little much for somebody who's just getting into, um, cocktails like that. So by adding um, reposado, it just kind of softens it out. That just that perception of a little bit of wood influence, uh, a little bit of thyme uh, in a barrel, uh, brings a little spice. It brings a little vanilla, things like that, uh, and it just uh, it just rounds out the edges a little bit. Got it. Yeah, go ahead. Um, actually, since, since you brought that up, um, I also I like to use things like Montenegro to do the same thing, uh, for, for some people. Um, and especially when people ask me, okay, what do I do with this stuff? Uh, I say, put a half ounce of it into any cocktail, uh, and see what it does, but especially in a margarita, um, while it does, you know, it brings this host of, uh, flavor experiences and complexity. It also brings, uh, a, a, a sort of deep, um, soft, uh, uh, sweetness, to it. So adding a half an ounce into a margarita recipe and shaking it up, um, helps to, helps to kind of, uh, soften the, the bite of tequila and lime juice, uh, a little bit. And additionally, it brings, like I said, a little, uh, bitterness to help all the flavors pop. So it's another way. So if you make, you know, if you make a margarita with Reposado tequila and uh, a little Amaro, like a Montenegro or a more, you know, a light to medium, uh, Amaro, uh, it, you get some pretty cool results. And I find that, um, people really enjoy it. Oftentimes I won't tell them what I've done, uh, because they just won't get it, uh, uh, intellectually or it'll scare them off. Um, but I'll put the glass in front of them and they try it and they're like, wow, this is the greatest thing. This is, uh, this is, this is so cool. This is so interesting. So I, I want, I, I love that level of permission to people to like, just, just pour a half, half ounce and see what happens. Would you be altering your, your spec at all, Tad? Does it just fit right in there? Would you pull back on your orange liqueur or something like that? Or if you, I would say split, I would say split it. If you're using an orange liqueur, um, if you're using, um, let's say you're using three quarters of an ounce of, of, uh, Cointreau or Curacao or something like that, maybe start with, uh, half an ounce of Cointreau, quarter ounce of uh, Montenegro. But you could, to make it easy, you could 
you could just augment and add on top of that. Uh, Montenegro is only 23% alcohol. So it's really, uh, uh, it's really a, uh, a very nominal uh, increase in the ABV uh, of the cocktail, even if you just added it on top as a, you know, as what people would call a floater, um, you know, just add in a half an ounce and, and shake it up. Okay. Okay. That's great. Uh, last question on my end, uh, in the book, you also talk about, uh, grandma mix. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my, so it, this is like, it seems like you guys combining equal parts, simple syrup and mm-hmm. grand Monnier. Right. And so is the marrying of those two things that like, is, is, are the barrel notes or is the, uh, is, is there something that's too potent about it in terms of why you're marrying the sugar in there? Um, yeah, for me, I love the flavor, uh, and the mouthfeel of Grand Marnier. Um, but when combining it, especially with, you know, a fresh, vibrant, bright, uh, Blanco tequila, um, it can, it can take over, you know, it can be the loud mouth at the party uh, a little bit because yes, the barrel notes, um, just that, that incredibly concentrated, uh, perfumey orange, uh, note. Um, and it's, and it's high in alcohol. You feel it. It's, it's, it's heady. Um, so by taking everything that's great about it and what it, it brings to a cocktail, but kind of lengthening that with uh, simple syrup, but not, you know, you're not reducing the, the mouthfeel or the body. Uh, it just kind of softens it um, and uh, lets, lets other people at the party share the dance floor. I, I really do like that because I do feel like it's, it, it sometimes can be very easy to end up with an overly orangey margarita. Um, mm-hmm. and that, that makes sense. Um, yeah. Perfect. And I'm, I'm a huge, uh, espouser of the Tommy's margarita. Uh, when I make, when I make them at home for myself and my, and my friends, uh, I generally speaking, it's lime juice, a little sugar and, uh, and, and good tequila and a okay. shaker, of course. Sure. Of course. Of course. Yeah. 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 Um, Ted, this is, this has been great. I, um, I really, I really appreciate the, the time today. Chris, I appreciate your time, uh, very much and, uh, keep doing what you do and, and, uh, sharing the love with, uh, your growing audience. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I will do that. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening. If you liked the interview, the transcript and show notes are located at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself, Chris LeBeau. Subscribe to avoid missing an episode. And if you think this is good stuff, share it with a friend or review us on your listening platform. And check out our newsletter, Cocktail Confidential. Remember, the best way to get better at mixology is to practice. And the best way to do that is in the company of friends and family. Happy cocktailing, everybody.